Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Golden Skull by John Blaine. Volume 2, Chapter 3 The Gods of Banaue. Scotty reached out for the Hindu boy, but Chada stepped nimbly aside. No time for horseplay now, he said. Or talk either. The houseboy will hear. It is important I stay under cover. You go up and eat. Later, if I can, I will come to the Manila Hotel. If I cannot, I will meet you at Bagueo. The boys knew better than to argue. They each punched Chada affectionately as they passed him. Then Rick knocked on the door, which was instantly opened by a Filipino houseboy. The houseboy led them up a steep flight of stairs into a huge living room, sparsely furnished after the tropical fashion, but with exquisite and expensive Chinese furniture of rosewood and teak. Tony Briati came to meet them, then introduced them to Dr. Remedios Ocola and the Honorable Iranio Lazada. Dr. Ocola obviously had a great deal of Spanish blood in his ancestry. He was tall and lean with a deeply lined face and a magnificent hawk-like nose. His hair was iron gray. He wore black dress trousers and an open-neck slip-over shirt of a very fine, almost transparent fabric, heavily embroidered on the front. The shirt hung outside his trousers in traditional style. This was the Morong Tagalog, the native Filipino costume. Where the Filipino archaeologist showed his Spanish blood, the Honorable Iranio Lazada's face betrayed his Chinese ancestry. He was round of face, and his eyes had the typical epicanthic fold. He was dressed in an expensive white sharkskin suit with a white American-style shirt and black tie. The tie was held in place by the biggest diamond Rick had ever seen. He assumed it was real. No one would wear a phony one that big. Lazada had a huge vanilla cigar in one hand and a fan in the other. By some feat of leisure domain, he managed to shake hands with the boys without letting go of either. Come in, come in, he said genially. Welcome to the Philippines. How about some refreshment? We've got Coke. That suited the boys fine. Lazada waved a pudgy hand and a slippered houseboy appeared like a genie, carrying two iced glasses of Coke. Rick was not in the least surprised. He had had his favorite American beverage in more unexpected places than this. Tony Briati explained, Dr. Ocola and I just got here. We had a most interesting day at the university. I was beginning to go into details of our expedition with Mr. Lazada. Please, continue, Lazada said expansively. Rick, who was sensitive to voices, had the impression that Mr. Lazada's voice passed through a bath of highly refined oil before it emerged from his thick lips. It wasn't exactly oily, just sort of over-lubricated. Lazada alternatively smoked and fanned. You were telling me of Spindrift Island. Am I to gather that you are the only Spindrift scientist on this expedition, and that these young men just came for the voyage? By no means. Tony set Lazada straight. Rick is our pilot and electronics technician. Scotty's our mechanic and camp manager. Pilot? Lazada looked surprised. Dr. Ocola hastened to explain. I neglected to tell Mr. Lazada that you are bringing your own plane. Of course, sir. 
permission was obtained in advance from the Philippine Aeronautics Authority. A helicopter, of course, Lozada said. Nothing else would be of value in the mountain province. The only airfield is at Baguio. It's a four-place sky wagon, Rick said. We hope there might be some suitable landing places. Lozada shrugged. Perhaps there are, but they are not regular airports. Planes do not fly in that country. Both the mountains and the weather are quite dangerous. Might it not be possible for them to land at the roadway at Batonk and then go over the mountains to Banuel by truck? Dr. Okola asked. Perhaps. Lazada didn't seem too optimistic. Exactly where do you expect to find this golden skull? He added, I can tell you more about the transportation you will need when I know that. We only know that it should be somewhere among the rice terraces, Tony Briati said. I realize that they cover entire mountainsides. That is why we came prepared to stay for some time if need be. There is so much territory to cover with our equipment. Many square miles, Lazada agreed. What is the expression? A needle in a haystack? Surely you must have some kind of clue. Just one, Dr. Okola said. A dragon. Isn't that so, Dr. Briati? Tony nodded. That's what the translation of the Quangara Island artifacts said. The dragon is supposed to be guarding a cache of religious objects, including the golden skull and other golden objects. You mean a gilt skull, of course. Lazada corrected. No, the description is quite clear, a skull of metallic gold. A miniature, probably. No, sir, the skull is actually larger than life-size. Lazada stopped slouching in his chair. Why, that's incredible, Dr. Kola spoke up. After all, Mr. Secretary, gold is mined right here in the Philippines. In Mountain Province, in fact and it is found in many other parts of Asia. Rick had a strange feeling as he watched Lozada's face. The assistant secretary seemed to be licking his lips, although he wasn't actually doing it. It was almost as though Lozada was doing sums in his head. Gold is heavy. It would take a lot of gold to make a life-size skull, even a hollow one. Gold is worth $35 an ounce, legally, if smuggled into China, it would bring twice that much. Tell me more of this dragon, Lazada invited. Tony was glad to oblige. Next to actually working at his profession, he enjoyed talking about it. The dragon is of the greatest importance throughout the culture in the East. We followed its trail from the great temple of Angkor Vat in Cambodia all the way to the sunken temple of Alta Yuan. Rick remembered vividly. He had been in the controls of the submobile, a hundred fathoms under the water of the Pacific, when the first Alta Yuan dragon came to light. The dragon was the incarnation of the chief god of the Alta Yuan people. When an earthquake sank the temple, the people of the island lost their gods. When we hauled the dragon back up and gave it to them, nothing was too good for us. He paused. By we, I mean the spindrift scientists. I was not among the lucky ones, since I had not yet joined the spindrift group. 
Mercola shared Tony's excitement over the Alta Yuan find. I, too, am very much interested in that expedition, and when I heard that the artifacts brought from the bottom of the sea provided a possible connection between the Philippines and that ancient culture, well, you can imagine my excitement. Rick can see that Lizada could not possibly imagine so much excitement over an archaeological find, but was too courteous to say so. Then finding a similar dragon among the rice terraces would show a link between our country and the ruins of Angkor Wat? Lizada asked. Exactly, Tony replied. Lizada rose. Dinner is ready. Let us continue our discussion at the table. They went out to the balcony, which overlooked a garden at the rear of the house. A table was set with the finest Chinese linen, and delicate Siamese silverware was waiting for them. Houseboys waited to serve them. Over a dinner of broiled giant prawns, meat-stuffed rolls called lumpia, and whole barbecued suckling pig called leshon, they continued their talk of the expedition. What is the significance of the golden skull? Lizada asked. I did not know until today, Tony answered. I found out from my esteemed colleague here. He's been doing some very hard work on it. Do you want to answer, Dr. Ocola? The Filipino archaeologist looked pleased, but he hastened to say, The credit is not mine alone. I had the invaluable assistance of one of my graduate students, who is himself an Ufuego, a brilliant young man. Next week I am attending a celebration at his home in honor of his becoming an assistant professor at the university. I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to meet him, Tony Briati said. Did you mention his name? His name is Nangolat. However, Mr. Lazada asked about the significance of the Golden Skull. We were able to uncover a story about it among many Ifuego myths, a story of which I had not been aware until Dr. Briati's letters put me on the track. You realize that the Ifuego religion is rich in myths. It is a very complicated religion, with over a thousand gods. Scotty whistled. They must have a god for nearly everything they say or do. Just about, Dr. Okoli agreed. Even their universe is divided into five regions. There is the known Earth, Pugwa, the sky world, Kunbanian, the region downriver, Iagod, the region upriver, Daya, and the underworld, Dalun. What river? Rick asked. Any river on which they happen to live, Okola answered. No one knows exactly what the original river of the Ufugues might have been. You see, they are immigrants. They came from the Chinese mainland. But we don't know exactly when or whether their original home was China. Perhaps we will find out that it was Cambodia. We do know that their miraculous rice terraces were started at least 2,000 years ago. That makes them almost as old as the pyramids, Scotty exclaimed. Quite right. The whole culture is quite astonishing. We think of them as primitive people, but their history is more complex than our own. However, we were speaking of heads. 
Heads have always been of the greatest religious importance to the Ufugues. They have been headhunters for religious and economic reasons for centuries. First America, and then the Republic of the Philippines, tried to stop out the custom. In general, we have succeeded. There is little or no headhunting now, at least as far as we know. Lazada grunted. The mountains are difficult to police. I doubt that we know all that goes on there. I wouldn't be surprised if a head wasn't taken now and then. After all, the Fugues got the heads of two American professors only a few years ago. The murders were for religious reasons, Okola explained. Sacrifices were needed for the rice crop. The unfortunate professors were on a hiking trip, and they happened along at just the wrong moment. Rick remembered the newspaper reports of the incident. It had attracted worldwide attention. The Ufugwe natives responsible had been captured by the Philippine constabulary, tried, and punished. Okola continued. We have traced back a thread through the complicated maze of Ufugwe myths. The thread leads to a legendary hero, the leader god who led the Ufugues to the Philippines. The golden skull was originally his own, turned to gold by the very power of the hero's magic, after his death, of course. At first it was an ordinary skull, and then it turned to gold. Then the skull has something to do with headhunting? Rick asked. Indeed it does. It is apparently the chief object to which heads are sacrificed, or at least was before it was lost. The golden skull is Amaduan, the very soul stuff of the Ifugues. How is it lost? Scotty inquired. In a war between the Kunbanyan, the gods of the sky world, and the Dalun, the gods of the underworld, said Okola quite seriously. The Dalun won. They took the head and disappeared into the ground somewhere in Banue. Behind them they left a great taboo. If an Ufugwe tries to follow them into the underworld to reclaim the skull, great misfortune will come. An earthquake will destroy the terraces. The people will starve. They will be haunted by the Dodingarak, ghouls who dwell in tombs and bite the faces of intruders. Then the Ufugues will take a dim view of our hunting their golden skull, Rick guessed. They might if they knew about it. Dr. Okola said. Actually, what I have just told you is almost forgotten lore. I doubt that an Ifugwe man on the street, or properly man in the rice terraces, has ever heard of it. A few old priests may remember. Iranio Lazada clapped his hands and rose. Coffee in the living room, gentlemen. You know, I begin to have some hope for this golden skull. I had not really taken your expedition seriously until Dr. Okola's recital. Tony Briati picked him up quickly. Then why is it that you failed to issue a permit? Rick stopped in his tracks. He didn't know there had been trouble with the permit. He had wondered about the reason for this dinner with the Assistant Secretary of the Interior. Perhaps it was to persuade him? Lazada smiled. The government doesn't want to stir up trouble among mountain tribes. We do not have enough constabulary for police duty in the mountains. 
The small detachment at Bagueo is the best we can do. I assure you we don't intend to stir up trouble, Tony Briati said. Of course not. And so I will issue your permit. Thank you, Mr. Secretary, Dr. Ocola said. This will mean a great deal to the Philippines. Dr. Briardi assures me that Spindrift will not ask for anything to be removed from the islands. The golden skull, if it is found, will remain right here, perhaps at the university's museum. Such a treasure would need to be well guarded, Lizada chuckled. Ha! We do have thieves in the Philippines, as does every other country. Again, he seemed to be licking his lips without actually doing it. Over a second cup of coffee, they laid out their plans. Lazada would instruct the district road commissioner at Montauk to cooperate with them in every way since that official came under his jurisdiction. Through the district commissioner, they could hire any laborers they might need. The commissioner also would arrange for Rick's plane to land on the highway at Montauk when necessary. Since there was little traffic, landing would present no real problems. They could use the district office at Bontoc and make it their headquarters. Dr. Ocola sighed. I can't tell you how sorry I am that you come in the midst of a university semester. If you are still searching at the end of next week, I will join you. But until then, it will be impossible. But you're going to send us a good guide who knows the area, right? Tully reminded him. Oh, yes. He will be at your hotel in the morning. His name is Angel Monotok, and you can trust him with no hesitation. He speaks Igorot and Ufugwe, as well as the Filipino dialects of this region. He can drive a truck, and he can cook reasonably well. Ocola pronounced the man's name, Angel, in the Spanish way, Angel. Sounds like a handy guy to have around, Scotty remarked. Yeah, Rick agreed. Besides, it's nice to have an angel in the party. The hour was late. The boys and Tony Briati bid goodnight to Lizada and Ocola, who refused the offer of another Coke, but did accept a ride back to the hotel in Lizada's car. As they left the house, the boys looked for Chada. There was a Sikh at the gate, but he was a big man. Chada was not in sight. Lazada's car turned out to be a brand new Cadillac with a special maroon paint job and a monogram about four inches square on every door. Evidently, the assistant secretary believed in personal advertising. They were tired, and the ride back to the Manila Hotel was made in silence, except for a brief report to Tony that all was in readiness for the trip to Baguio on the first leg of their journey. At the hotel desk, they picked up their room keys. The boys had one room and Tony had another. The rooms were on the second floor, so they walked upstairs instead of bothering with the slow elevators. Good night, boys, Tony said wearily. He inserted his key and swung the door open, then stiffened as a crash sounded in the room. Rick and Scotty snapped out of their weary haziness and leapt into the room behind Tony in time to see a figure dive headlong for the window. Rick yelled in horror. They rushed to the window, expecting to see a man dead on the ground below. Instead, they saw him swing lightly from the branch of a flame tree and drop to the ground. He ran across Dewey Boulevard and was lost in the darkness. 
under the walls of the Intramuros. Chapter 4 Inside the Walls The fire escape! Scotty yelled. Rick was with him in an instant. They ran to the end of the corridor, threw open the door, and dashed down the fire escape. No word passed between them as they crossed Dewey Boulevard. At a time like this, their teamwork was automatic. They reached the walls of Intramuros, and Scotty went left and Rick went right. Somewhere along the walls or within the city was the intruder. The question was, had the intruder kept right on going across the walled city, or was he in hiding, waiting to see whether or not he was being pursued? If the former, their chances of catching up with him were almost zero. Rick rounded the corner of the wall and had a clear view all the way down to the Department of Commerce building, nearly a half mile away. There were sufficient streetlights to show him that the quarry was not in sight. He saw a breach in the wall a few yards away and hurried toward it. There was almost no light within the walled city, he suspected, but he would have to look. The breach turned out to be a pile of rubble. He would have to go over the wall unless he wanted to search for an entrance. There wasn't time for that. He climbed up the pile of rubble, careful about his footholds, and gained the top of the wall. For a moment he was silhouetted at his full height. And in that instant, a rifle cracked. He saw the muscle flame, and in the next instant, he heard the soft smacking sound of the slug as it went past his ear. There was only one thing to do. He jumped. The wall was high, and he had no way of knowing what was below but it was better to risk unknown rubble than another shot from the sniper's gun. He landed with knees flexed and struck level ground, but fell forward with the momentum of the fall. Thorns dug into his hands, and he smothered a grunt of pain. He lay where he was, not moving, waiting for some move from the sniper, and for his eyes to adjust themselves to the dense blackness within the walls. He wondered whether the sniper and the intruder were the same man. The intruder had carried no rifle when he went out the hotel window, but it was possible that he had cached one somewhere under the wall. What could the man have been after? Rick rejected the idea that this was some common thief. It was possible, but not probable, especially after the attack on Tony Briati aboard the boat, and after finding that Chada had gone underground and was posing as a Sikh. He was sure that something was cooking that boded ill for the expedition nor did he have to rack his brains much to find the cause. A golden skull was reason enough. Mass murder had been committed for less gold many times before this. His eyes searched the darkness, and his ears strained for the slightest sound, but no movement or noise followed. Yet, unless that sniper was the world's most silent walker, he could not have slipped away. And where was Scotty? Again, he pondered the mystery of Chada. The Hindu boy had been registered at the Manila Hotel, waiting for the Spindrift party. Then, three days before they arrived, he had checked out and gotten a job as a guard at Lazada's. The disguise didn't cause Rick much wonderment. Sikhs, after all, are Indians, and Chada had once worked for a Sikh officer in the Bengal Lancers. Rick remembered that from an incident during the Tibet expedition. It was probable that Chada had simply gone to the chief Sikh at Manila, there was always such a leader, and enlisted his aid. But the question was, why? Rick tensed, sensing a presence near him. 
He raised on one elbow and thought he discerned a figure nearby. The figure was close to the wall. He had a hunch that it was Scotty, but he couldn't be sure. He made no further movement, waiting to find out. The figure became clearer, passed close in front of him, and from his low vantage point, the man was silhouetted against the sky, which had a pink glow from the myriad neon lights of downtown Manila. There was no doubt about it, the figure was Scotty's. Rick got to his feet, staying close to the wall, and moved in the same direction Scotty had taken. The inner ground of the walled city was fairly clear, but close to the wall there was considerable debris. Rick proceeded carefully, trying not to make a noise. He picked his way through tangles of weeds and wire and loose stone and piles of junk that had been accumulated since the days of the Spanish conquistadors. He was tense and his face was wet with sweat. There was a possibility that the sniper was gone, but if not, a noise could bring a lethal slug. Rick thought grimly that the ancient walled city probably had seen many a murder in more than its 300 years since the wall had been built. He had no desire to be the most recent victim. Even as the thought crossed his mind, his foot struck the edge of a twisted sheet of steel. The sheet, all that remained of a Japanese armored car, rang dully. Instantly, the rifle flamed. The slug smacked into the stone wall a foot from Rick's shoulder. He didn't wait for the next shot. He hit the ground, scuttled a few feet, and stopped in a thorny patch. He grimaced and risked wiping sweat off his brow. At least one question was answered. The sniper had not left yet. Rick knew that the mysterious rifleman could have gotten away before this. The fact that he was still lying in wait could only mean one thing. He had known he was being pursued by the spindrifters, and he had waited in hopes of picking one or two of them off. Fingers of ice laid themselves across Rick's spine. It was no fun being the object of deadly intentions. He lay very still. His hand brushed something soft among the thorns, and he thought he knew what it was. He was lying in a patch of tiny pink flowers known as Cadina de Amor, Chain of Love. He had seen them everywhere during the day. They grew like weeds anywhere they were allowed to flourish. The humor of it touched him. How romantic his sister Barbie would think it, to be trailing a desperado through an ancient Spanish city and to be flat on one's stomach in a patch of chain of love. If he got out of this with his skin whole, he would write her about it, omitting such unpleasant facts as rifle bullets striking up close and thorns among the flowers. But unless he did something about it, he would probably still be lying there at dawn. He rose to his knees and then to his feet, holding his breath until lack of response from the rifleman told him he had not been observed. Then he resumed his slow march in the direction Scotty had taken. All the guidebooks to the Philippines mentioned the walled city was a must-see item for tourists, and Rick had intended to take a daytime tour. This was not a suitable substitute. He would still have to return by day. He moved on with extreme caution. He could see nothing but the upper edge of the wall and the silhouette of the ancient cathedral a few hundred yards away. But movement of air, a slight thinning of the darkness, told him when he passed openings in the thick wall. Suddenly he stopped, all senses alert. He'd heard something. 
As he waited, muscles rigid with the strain of listening, he heard a whisper no louder than the rustle of a moth's wing. Rick? Yeah? He breathed. Even though he was expecting it, he gave an involuntary jump when Scotty's hand touched his sleeve. Scotty's lips touched his ear, and the husky ex-marine whispered almost inaudibly, Get to the street, ten paces ahead. I have an empty gasoline drum. Going to throw it. If he fires and is close enough, rush him. If not, make for the gate. We can't stay here all night. Rick found Scotty's shoulder and squeezed it to indicate agreement. Then he crouched low, ready to move like a plunging fullback in any direction. Scotty moved away. In a moment, Rick heard the faint scrape of metal on stone. He filled his lungs with air and then held his breath, waiting. He sensed, rather than saw Scotty lift the gas drum over his head. Even when empty, gas drums weigh quite a bit. But Scotty launched it like a medicine ball. Rick saw it briefly, a cylindrical shadow against the sky. Then it landed with an appalling clatter, struck sparks from a stone, and rolled noisily away. The rifle flamed once, then twice. It was perhaps twenty paces away, and the shooting was toward the drum. Rick rushed forward, arms outstretched. He heard a slap like a baseball hitting a glove and a cry of pain. The rifle blasted again muzzle skyward. Rick thought he heard a siren wail, but there wasn't time to wonder. He sprang headlong toward the rifleman. His shoulders struck flesh, which yielded. Then warm metal touched his hand, and he grabbed for it. The rifle barrel. He leaned on it, keeping it vertical, and put his weight into the job of driving its owner off balance. A blow caught him under the eye, and he saw stars. For a moment, he relaxed his grip, and then released the rifle, reaching until he found cloth. He pulled, letting himself go backwards as the wearer of the cloth was pulled off balance. He landed on his back, and a knee in the chest drove the air out of him. He rolled sideways, fist driving out. One connected, and the shock of hitting bone ran through his knuckles and up his arm. A heavy weight landed on his stomach, and he grunted, trying to roll out from under it. Again, his fist lashed out and connected. He drew it back for another punch. Brilliant light suddenly illuminated the scene. Rick blinked in the glare and saw Scotty's grim face above him. Scotty had his fist cocked back for a punch that would have knocked him colder than a raspberry popsicle. Hold it, Rick grunted. Scotty was forcing the air out of him by sheer weight. Running feet pounded the earth and hands jerked both of them to their feet. Scotty held the sniper's rifle, but the sniper was gone. A Filipino policeman looked at them over the sights of a forty-five caliber Colt automatic. Even in the reflected lights of the prowl car's headlamps, the muzzle looked only slightly smaller than the entrance to Mammoth Cave. Rick's hair lifted. Put that thing down, he gulped. Officer, Tony said crisply. These are the two boys from my party. They were chasing the burglar. He added, apparently they succeeded only in catching each other. Under the name of an Igorot icebox were you two trying to do? The boys looked embarrassed. We had the sniper, Rick explained, but we must have gotten tangled up. I, I thought the man with the rifle was the burglar, but it was Scotty. 
He threw the rifle at me, Scotty said. I reached for him, swung on him and connected. Then the rifle knocked me down. The policeman's running mate came back from the search in the darkness. He spoke to his companion in Tagalog. No use, the first policeman said. He is gone. We would need help to find him, since the walled city is big and has many hiding places. Can you give a description? By the time help came, he could be miles from here. Perhaps we can get him later. Rick knew how hopeless that was. Unless you boys got a better look, the only thing I can say is that he was either an Igorot or an Ifugwe, short and muscular. I saw his haircut, couldn't very well miss it, but not his face, said Tony. Rick and Scotty hadn't even seen that much. An Igorot or an Ifugwe? Probably the latter, since their expedition was connected to the Ufugues and not the Igorots. Rick remembered the incident of the freighter. There was certainly a pattern to this. I will be the one to take the rifle, the policeman said. Rick wondered at the strange flavor of the phrase, but he was to hear it many times in the Philippines. I will be the one. It was a literal translation from the Spanish. I will be the one to take the names the second policeman said, opening his notebook. You will have to make charges. No use, Tony replied. Let's forget the whole thing. We'll never catch up with the guy, whoever he was. Nevertheless, the policeman insisted on names and histories, and it was ten minutes before the spindrifters made their way back to the hotel. In the main dining room, they talked over cups of hot chocolate ignoring the curious stares of late supper guests who obviously wondered about Rick and Scotty's disheveled condition. Since the boys had not wanted to discuss their personal business in front of Lazada's chauffeur, there had been no chance to tell Tony about Chada. Now they did so, and Rick ticked off points on his fingers. Item 1. The man on the boat who tried to chop you. Either an Igorot or an Ufugwe. Item 2. Chada checks out of the hotel and appears as a Sikh guard at Lazada's. You forgot Adam Three, Scotty added. Colonel Felix Rojas asked us what good is hay to a dead horse and knew we were having dinner at Lazada's. He described the incident to Tony. Adam Four, Rick continued. We find a prowler in your room. He had a rifle cached in the walled city and waited around to use it on us. He was either an Igorot or an Ifugwe. He spread his hands. Do we need anything more? Something is in the wind, right? But what? A golden skull, Scotty said. Yeah, but we don't have it. It doesn't make any sense for anybody to try to knock us off before we have it. Shucks, we don't even know where it is, except that it's somewhere among the rice terraces which is like saying that somewhere in the Mojave Desert is a buried treasure, Scotty added. Tony sighed. I'd heard a great deal about the penchant you two have for mysteries and excitement. Now I believe everything I've heard and more. I can't imagine any reason for all these happenings. They simply don't make sense. They do to somebody, Rick said, and Scotty nodded agreement. Their waiter approached with an envelope in his hand. Mr. Brandt, please come while you outside. You take? Rick took it. Must have arrived while Scotty and I were battling for the boxing championship of the walled city. He tore it open. 
Item five, he said. From Chada. Can't come now. Meet you in Baguio. Watch yourselves. Big danger from Ifugwe. No pallet. Scotty held his head with both hands. Great. How do we know whether or not Nafugwe has no pallet? Look down the throats of everyone we see, I guess, said Rick wearily. Or maybe if Nafugwe has no pallet, he wears a sign to say so. Tony Briati rose. That message makes no sense either. And I make no sense to myself. It's late. Come on, let's go to bed. Maybe everything will clear up in the morning. Go to bed or go nuts, Rick added. The choice is easy. But let's bar the windows just to keep the night air out? Amen to that, Scotty said. I think I'll break out my rifle and keep it by the bed, just in case some of that dangerous night air gets in. <laughs>